This is Amanda. And this is Rachel. And this is Vocal Perspective. Welcome to another episode of Vocal Perspective. And on today's show, I am so delighted to be joined by Caitlin Nelson from Concrete, who I also had the pleasure of seeing in person just a few days ago. So I feel like we'll be having the same conversation over again, but this will be all new for all of you listening. So uh, welcome, Caitlin. How are you? I'm great, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Oh. It was lovely to see you a couple days ago. <laughs> I know. I feel like this is such a gift for me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, it's funny. We hardly ever see anyone, even though New York is like full of acapella people. It's just getting us all in one place is not one of the things we do very often. For sure. So I guess let's start off with your background in acapella. For those who don't know, Caitlin was part of All Night Yahtzee, a very well-known collegiate acapella group. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in acapella, if it was before that or just then? Sure. So I have been doing acapella. I mean, I've been doing choral work since elementary school. I was really lucky in that my elementary school had a really great music program. And so our music teacher all throughout elementary school did not only vocal work with us, but also instrumental and would bring in groups from the outside to perform for us. So I think my first exposure to acapella was really in elementary school and the Haverford Ford Escorts came and performed for us several times, I remember. But my first real contemporary acapella experience was in high school. I went to Leon High School in Tallahassee, Florida, which is where main event is from. And they were started, I think, while I was in high school, um, my junior year, and I couldn't be in it because they rehearsed on a day where I was doing something else. (laughs) And (laughs) so then my senior year, I was able to join. And our choir teacher, Miss Hall, who's now Miss Hall Peck, was connected to All Night Yahtzee in college. And so we had a lot of their arrangements when I was in high school. So I knew about them kind of going into college because I wound up going to Florida State as well and staying in Tallahassee. So I didn't join an acapella group freshman year, but I wound up joining All Night Yahtzee my sophomore year after meeting several of the people who were in charge and getting exposed to them and that world. And Yahtzee was not a big deal when I joined it. (laughs) Which is so funny to think about because there's such a huge deal now. Right? I know. Everybody knows All Night Yahtzee. And it used to be that nobody knew All Night Yahtzee and that we were, I think, one of the furthest South contemporary acapella groups at that time in Florida. And we are, Tallahassee is not Southern in Florida. It's very Northern. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I was really lucky to kind of be able to come up in Yahtzee at the same time that Yahtzee was coming up in the acapella world. Wow. So it was just a really great experience, made lifelong friends. Christopher Mm -hmm. Diaz, who almost everybody in the acapella world knows now at this point, was my music director for the last two years that I was in it. Wow. That was kind of where I guess my love of acapella was forced upon me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. You took it willingly. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) And I kept going from there. And when I graduated, I moved to Boston and I joined a new group there, which is still going on. They're called the 508s. I was their music director for a little while and then moved across the country to Seattle and joined a new group there that doesn't exist anymore that a smaller group that does still exist came out of called Shot in the Dark. Nice. And then moved back across the country (laughs) to Baltimore and then to New York where I joined Empire actually within the first week or so of me moving to New York. I think I for them. Yeah, I know, right? It was like, what can I do in New York? It's acapella. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) So yeah, I've had a long and kind of 
of all over the place history of joining and starting groups. And Concrete, the group that I am now music director of, was started out of several people in Empire. So we're all connected somehow, I feel. No, that's awesome. So it sounds like you had this like sort of really diverse exposure to different kinds of group and maybe even different styles. What do you feel like has been your personal evolution in acapella in that time? I feel like, and I say this about a lot of things in my life, I'm kind of an oblivious person and it takes me longer to kind of grow up in things than I think a lot of other people. And so I was just kind of along for the ride for a lot of it. For Yahtzee especially, I feel like I was just kind of along for the ride. And despite being a music student and knowing music theory and having a vocal background, I didn't really start dipping my toe into arranging or leading groups until much later. And I think that's probably a good thing for me because I learned from the best, right? I learned from Katie Schumann was my original music director in Yahtzee and then learned from Chris while he was in Yahtzee. And we were all kind of figuring things out together. And then when I moved to Boston, the group that I joined had almost no background in written arrangements. All of the people that were starting it came from the same group at the same college and their background was entirely group arranging and just kind of figuring out songs that they wanted to sing by listening to them. Yeah. It was completely new for me because we were so structured and I am personally so structured in the way that I learn and think about music that it was really difficult marrying the people coming in with that other perspective. And so we did a couple of arrangements that way at the beginning. And then things kind of morphed more into starting with a baseline arrangement and adding things onto there. We call them the noodley bits. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that has still kind of stuck with me. It's like, great. So I love this idea of adding individual perspectives into arrangements, but have a base first. Yeah. And then let's kind of go from there. So I brought that with me into the group in Seattle. And it's so funny. I, as kind of an aside, I like not being in charge of vocal groups because as the person in charge, you don't necessarily just get to sing a lot in the vocal, which is one of the things that I love doing. So I joined the group in Seattle, not wanting to be in charge and then winding up being in charge. (laughs) Things happen and people leave. And I'm the kind of person that I just want things to continue. And I don't want something to fall apart just because the person that started it isn't there anymore. Yeah. And so that happened in Seattle and it happened in Empire as well when I got to New York. And so I feel like I've picked up bits and pieces of how other people direct groups and brought that along with me as well as the arranging. I feel like I have gotten smaller and smaller groups as I've come along. Yahtzee was really big as most collegiate groups are. Um, we were 18 people, I think, by the That's end. so huge. Of, it's huge. It's a choir. It's an Yeah, totally. And it's an army, right? We were like a force on stage. Absolutely. So the group in Boston was maybe 12 people. And then the group in Seattle was kind of similar, but we narrowed it down to eight by the time I left. And then Empire was around eight or nine. And then Concrete is six. Yeah. And so we've just been getting smaller and smaller and kind of figuring out the best way to arrange for many voices versus individual voices. It's all been a learning experience for me. And I am really thankful to have now, especially the musicians that I've had in my groups that have allowed me to kind of figure it out along the way. Yeah. Because it means that the arrangements and the directing style can really be catered to the people.
people who are in the group at the time. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what you feel like the benefit is for you of having a smaller group? Is it easier to arrange? Do you, what do you get out of being in a group that is six voices versus 18? I think personally, it's easier to arrange because I know everyone's voice intimately. I know what they're capable of. I know what it sounds like in each part of their voice. Yeah. And so I can decide whether or not I want to push their range or push what they can do in a certain part of their range or leave them alone and kind of just let them sing depending on what the song is, what it calls for, what the arrangement calls for. And I feel like we can really cater solos this way too. Yeah. And really figure out what people want to sing, what they can sing that they didn't know that they could do. Yes. And I prefer the intimacy of the smaller group and just like knowing and trusting the people that I sing with. I feel like especially once you get out of college, other stuff takes precedence, right? Like other things are more important. And so when you have a group that's larger, you have multiple people on a part, but that might not be the case every rehearsal. You might be missing a voice every single rehearsal, but it's a different voice every single rehearsal. (laughs) Yeah. And so you never really quite figure out what the entire group sound is. But the flip side of that is that you can perform when you don't have everyone and there's a backup for every part. I prefer the smaller group just because I know what's going on and I can wrap my head around the people and the parts better, but it definitely poses challenges as well. Absolutely. Do you think that those benefits and challenges extend to sort of the personal nature of the relationships in the group? Yes, definitely. I know when Concrete was there a couple days ago, I said we all get along and it's true. We all do get along, but that doesn't mean that like everybody is everybody else's best friend. And certainly not every second of the day. Right. Exactly. (laughs) We all have jobs. We all have other things that are going on in our lives. Totally. And with a bigger group, I'm sure it's easier to kind of find a couple people that you're more friends with that are the people that you really relate to the best, even if you like everybody else in the group as well. Yeah. Whereas if you feel singled out in a six person group, that's because you probably are. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think the flip side of that is true as well. If there's somebody that you're not that fond of in an 18 person group, you can lose that, right? You can, that can be the noise. Right. But in a six person group, everybody has to like each other at least a little bit, right? Yeah, it would be very difficult, but it's kind of like any other band. There's so many famous bands that you hear about where it's like they make great music and they look like they're having great time on stage. And then you hear the background stories of how they all hated each other and like (laughs) wouldn't talk when they weren't on stage performing and like wouldn't travel together. And like, thankfully, that's not an issue that we have to deal with. Sure. But being a group that looks at sound first, I Mm. think we could definitely bring in people that don't have the same personality that we do just because we want to make sure the sound is the same. Yeah. And cross your fingers, that never happens. Yeah. And I will say that even going to all of the places that I have gone and sung at and meeting all of the people that I have sung with, the people that I'm closest to and my best friends all throughout my life have been because of music and that has not changed. And in college, you can say, oh, it's because you spent so much time with those people. They have to be your best friends, but <laughs> I still talk to them and 
still consider them my friends. It's right. not like we were just forced out of necessity to be each other's friends. And that has been true everywhere that I've gone. All of my best friends are from acapella in New York and in Seattle and in Boston. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to sort of bring in a little bit of the element of the nature of this podcast, which is highlighting women in acapella. And I wonder what advice you might have as a woman music director for other women who might want to be music directors for their group or start their own group where they can lead? I think probably the best advice that I can give people is kind of similar to the advice that women get in the workplace, which is Mm -hmm. don't be afraid of speaking up. Don't be afraid of saying that you want to be in charge of something or even just taking charge of something. And obviously, when you're directing a group of your peers, it's a little bit different because you can't just force yourself upon a group of people (laughs) uh, like you can in the workplace when you get promoted or whatever. Sure. There's not necessarily going to be somebody there giving you the okay to take charge of something. And that might feel weird or bad. It certainly felt bad for me for a very long time. I don't particularly like to quote unquote teach groups of people things that I don't feel like I have been trained to teach them. I just finished like yoga teacher training and technically it's teacher training, right? But I feel like the best directors are more guiding people through things. They're not trying to teach them every step along the way. And yes, you may have people that you need to teach things to and that's totally fine. But the director's position, it's not a high horse. It's not a place to bring other people to your will. It's a place to guide them to where you best think that the song can go or that you know that they're capable of, but are not necessarily doing all of the time. And I think we have come to a point now where we're bringing to the forefront that you have to be uncomfortable to make change and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. And so I think you should not be afraid of being uncomfortable yourself, which is a hard step to take speaking from personal experience, (laughs) but also in making other people not necessarily uncomfortable in a bad way, but challenging what they think and not really minding that that may come back at you in a way that might be semi-negative or at least Mm -hmm. not positive. I think that's just something that we should all just keep in mind. We're all here trying to accomplish the same thing and it may not always be easy. Totally. Have you personally experienced any challenges in that regard at being female in the position that you're in? I don't know that being female really has any bearing on the challenges that I've faced from other people. I will say that going back to me being kind of an oblivious person and kind of a young person in the things, it took me a very long time to see myself as an authority, even though I have all of this knowledge. And I think that I do generally a good job at the things that I take on, but it took me a really long time to get there. It took me going through several groups and being in charge of several groups to really see myself as somebody who should be leading other people to sing a cappella or who should be arranging things for other people to sing. And that was mostly just because I didn't see myself that way in the first place. And so any pushback that I would get from anybody in any context was like, oh, obviously I shouldn't be doing this. It's a believe in yourself kind of thing, but that's one of the hardest things to accomplish if you don't have anybody else in your corner. And I was lucky to have other people in my corner pretty much every time. And so I would get pushed to do things 
that I was uncomfortable doing, but that ultimately made me a better director and a better leader. I love that. Caitlin, I mean, that is just a beautiful story. And I appreciate so much you taking some time to speak with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about acapella. I'll do it anytime. (laughs) Great. We will make up another plan to do it again. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, thank you so much to Caitlin Nelson from Concrete. And we are here with Vocal Perspective, and this segment that we wanted to speak to you about today is false facts in female acapella. And one of the ones that I think is one of the biggest falsities about female or higher pitched voices is that they can't make the full round sound that you often hear and see talked about in either mixed groups or in all male groups. And I think it's a falsity to think that women can't get to that same roundness and fullness of sound. I think it's just a false fear that people have out there. I agree. I think there are a lot of little tricks that we can do as female singers or female identified singers or treble voices. I think it takes a little bit more thought and I don't think it's really about hitting those super low notes. We have technology now with the octave pedals and the octave effects that can help bring out that bottom sound, but I think there are singing techniques and there are arranging techniques that can make all of the difference for treble voiced ensembles. Yeah, it sort of hurts me, I guess, to think that that people would think that music produced by female identifying groups, that it's not on par with either mixed groups or male identifying groups. And that somehow because the falsity that higher voices can't produce that kind of fullness is it makes me sad that people think that maybe that's the case. But I feel like there's so many groups out there that are bucking that trend. I feel like the Lorelei's are doing some really good work in that arena, producing some really great sounds, really great music. I think there's a lot of all-female or all-female identifying groups that that really have the ability to produce something that is really full and rich to listen to. Absolutely. And I think some of that is not worrying about getting below the bass clef. Yeah. I don't think you need to be banging out E's underneath the bass clef to make it sound like there is a bass sound there. I sing with a particularly low voice and she can hit some pretty crazy notes in my barbershop quartet and I never feel like the bass is missing. It's more about her tone of voice and her being able to produce something with a low tone rather than a low pitch and making that round and fitting it in with the rest of the group. I think with arrangements, so aside from having that just generally natural low tone, think voices like Joanna Vinson. She's not singing as low as men. She can hit some pretty low notes, but in terms of a true male low bass, she's of course not hitting those notes, but it can appear that way. I think there are a couple arrangement tricks, and that is putting your bass pretty low, pretty far away from the upper voices. That gives the appearance that it's much lower than it actually is. And I do that with my co-ed groups as well. We try not to have a lot of lengthy sections where the baritone or lower treble voice is sitting right on top of the bass. And that gives some illusion that the bass is a lot lower than it actually is. Also, what I found is when you arrange the top voices in a very tight cluster and you keep the voices in a smaller range, it actually brings out the bass a little bit more. I think some female arrangements, and to be honest, (laughs) I'm seeing this in a lot of female arrangements done by male arrangers. Um, Yes, women can go way above 
love the treble clef, and women can hit those notes. It's a matter of do we really want to hear that and hear that for an extended period of time? Yeah. To be honest, there aren't a lot of sopranos out there that sound great above the staff. And what ends up happening is you get a screechy, tinny noise instead of a full round sound. So it's not just making a full round sound at the bottom end, but also having a full round sound at the top end yeah. as well. Because once you start hearing those super high pitches, our ears are naturally drawn to that. And instead of focusing on the blend and the warmer tones, all you're hearing is that high, high pitch noise. Yeah. And sometimes it is just noise. It's not even music anymore. <laughs> so I wonder from your perspective, what are some groups that you feel like are doing a particularly good job of executing these arrangement tricks and making this rounder, fuller sound? <laughs> so I think Muse actually does this really well. Their bass isn't super, I mean, it is Joanna Vinson, but she's not, you know, she uses the octave effect wisely. And then they have Mel on the looper and using some electronic noises and they do that really well. And while they've got some very angelic, powerful, high voices, they're not pushing those voices out of their register just to use the full spectrum of their range. They don't need to. Right. But I do think that they do it particularly well. Awesome. So are there other facts that you feel like about female acapella that people have wrong? I think there's, and women kind of play into this. It's almost like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that women can't be funny. Women can't be amusing on stage. They can't show any humor. And I think, I think it comes from people think I can't be funny. So if I try to be funny, it's not going to be funny. And then I'm going to be awkward and it's just this vicious cycle. And I don't find myself to be a particularly funny person, but with some practice and with some well thought out bits, Hmm. I've actually found myself being quite funny on stage and I get a lot of laughs and it doesn't scare me to get laughs on stage. I also think women might be a little bit afraid of hearing people laugh at something that they do because typically when you're growing up, people laugh, you know, kids are mean and people laugh at you on stage when you mess up. And it's not It just has a deep-seated fear for some people that, oh gosh, people are going to laugh at me. And I've actually come to really enjoy it and like work really hard at making my show funny at some points. I mean, the audiences, especially as the world, it's this like nothing's funny anymore, like the news sucks. (laughs) People come to shows and they need to laugh. I mean, I think there's a reason why Netflix and their stand-up comedy specials is exploding because people just need to laugh Mm. right now and I think with some planning it's even the men they're not just going up there you don't have to be an improv stand-up comedian to make people laugh but if you plan it ahead of time and you deliver it naturally it can really work for your set and it can really bring the audience to a place where they're not thinking about what's going on outside the concert hall they are in the moment they are enjoying themselves and laughing is part of that and everyone has a little bit of funny in them especially if you're a performer there's a humorous side. I mean, I've sat in on so many different groups rehearsals. And the thing that groups really appreciate the most is that they make each other laugh. So figure out how to bring that to the audience. There is a fine line. You don't want to be up on stage sharing inside jokes. Like if people if you have to explain the joke, it's not funny. It's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) And if you go on with inside jokes, 
jokes, then the audience feels separated from you. They yeah, feel they like feel left a out. Barrier. Mm-hmm. Right. And you don't want to make your audience feel left out. However, notice what people do funny in rehearsal and kind of build on that and plan to use it in the show yeah. in a way that's effective. But also, it's just don't be afraid to be funny. Don't be afraid to try to make your audience laugh. And also, don't be afraid to just be yourself on stage. Sometimes there are moments that pop up on stage that you just have to roll with yep. and the audience enjoys it. Well, because then it's real. Then it's exactly. really real. It's not this super production, like very perfected, like it's human. And I think people really react and connect with the humanity of performers since since when you're on a stage, you're so physically higher up than the people right. that are in the audience. And that gives you sort of the perception of being higher, right? Being better in some ways. Right. I mean, you made it to the stage, right? <laughs> the people in the audience aren't on the stage. So <laughs> and letting them know that you are human and rolling with those moments, I think can be so connecting. Right. And you know, in fairness, a lot of people get into high school or college acapella. And the only experience they have on stage is either in a play where there is a fourth wall in a formal choir where you don't get to have those moments. Yeah. Or giving speeches in front of people where you when you first start giving speeches, when you become a very experienced public speaker, you can have those moments. But when you're first learning how to do public speaking, it's very hard unless you are just a naturally gifted public speaker. Yeah. Which most of us aren't. So it takes some practice and it takes some time. And sometimes jokes are going to fall flat. And as long as you just roll with that, (laughs) it works. Audiences, yeah, audiences' memory and attention span is quite short. If you just roll with it and keep going, they will likely forget about it after the next song or by the end of the show. So what else, Rachel? What have you seen? You've seen quite a bit on stage and you've interviewed quite a few groups. And I'm sure that there are other false facts that female singers encounter. Yeah, I mean, I think another one of the really big ones is that there's a lot of catty infighting and that women can't actually enjoy each other's company and be true friends, that there's always, you know, somebody vying for greatness or that there's jealousy. And and for sure, there's some of that. I mean, we're all human, right? But I think that women in general, I don't know, I think that there is a sisterhood, a true sisterhood that comes out of, born out of hours and (laughs) days and weeks of, of spending your time together and working very hard towards something that is really important to all of you. And I think that the falsehood that it's like that scene in Pitch Perfect where they're all like sliding around on the vomit and like, you know, like (laughs) pulling each other's hair and stuff. Oh, I hated that scene. It was so terrible on so many levels. I mean, it it plays into this false fact that I feel like people have, which is that women don't know how to actually be friends with each other. And that is so antithetical to my experience with the female friends I have. Right. The women that I am friends with are so supportive of each other and rooting so hard for each other to succeed and do well and your success does not take away from my success. I think that that is such a falsity that people have about women in general. Yes. And, you know, I want us to fight to challenge ourselves. Listeners, most of you are probably pro-women, pro-female, and we get that and we appreciate the support. However, how many times have you sat in the audience and watched an all-female group and just caught like a look or something like an awkward body language and have immediately assumed that those two women do not like each other. It's almost like we're looking for the drama. And I don't see that happening when it's a man, to be honest. You're not looking for drama. And I think as audiences, and you know, we're trained by Hollywood. Women don't like each other. Women don't support each other. So when we're watching women on stage together, we're like, oh, well, that one definitely wanted this solo. So clearly she hates the one that's doing it. And your brain 
goes there. And I think it's a natural thing. We've been socially conditioned to think that. So I want all of our listeners to challenge themselves. Recognize when this is happening in your brain. And I know I've done it. I've done it because I've lived it. And every once in a while, there are those moments where girls are not getting along. But there are moments when people just generally don't get along. It doesn't mean that they don't love each other and that they won't get past it. And maybe you're just seeing a blip on the radar and it's it'll be gone by the next day. But try not to be looking for it, like actively looking for it and just sit back and enjoy the show and go in with, I've been using this term a lot, positive intent. Yes. Assume positive intent. And I think that's how we remove that social conditioning to think that women are not actually friends with each other. It's like we've come to expect everything in life to have like an Instagram filter on it. Yes. Like we're being fake on stage. I'm doing what I think you want, but you're not seeing the real me. I think that extends somewhat to like there are moments on stage where you can see where people are really vibing. They look at each other. They have this like shared smile in their eyes and in their lips and catching those moments of connection, I think goes a long way to dispel some of that, right? Yes. That you can see that there is love there. And I really appreciate those moments myself. It's like, oh, this is their moment. They're enjoying it. They're, yeah, that to me is really special. And that also takes a little bit of practice, especially showing your affection in front of an audience and strangers. How awkward is that sometimes? But you know, you feel it. But that takes some practice and something that my groups have done and people that I've coached, they know that this is one of the things that I make them do. It's super uncomfortable, but is actually looking at each other in the eyes. And like sometimes I make people get uncomfortably close to each other and do some really silly things and you cannot break eye contact. So that way when it happens on stage, you're not immediately like looking down like, oh gosh, I can't look at you while other people are looking at us. Like that's awkward, but practicing that and then those moments on stage happen a little bit more comfortably for you. Yeah, It's not that it's not natural. It's not that you're not looking at someone with some true feelings for them and true affection and true connection. But unless you've done it over and over again in rehearsal, sometimes it's awkward in front of an audience. You're like, oh, I shouldn't be looking at you like that. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe there are some circumstances where voyeuristically, like, you know, as an audience member, you want to see the connection between people because that's part of what it's about is getting this bit of insight into some of the inner workings of what's going on behind the scenes, right? And some of those moments that you share connecting give the audience that sense of you aren't just automatons on the stage performing, that you actually are human beings with connections and emotions and feelings. And And I think that's a good place to wrap it up. There's our challenge for performers and also for audience members. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we'll be back next week with Mel Danicki of Musee and Viridian Productions.